Our reading today is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as a wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Sometimes I forget just how broken our city really is. Those are the words that came out of my mouth when my wife Allie and I were driving to visit some friends who lived east of downtown. And while we were driving, what do we see? But one house burnt down, another one boarded up, another one with a front porch chocked full of kids, then an abandoned high school, another abandoned building. Another one chock full of people, and then another one burnt down, all in what seemed like a city block. And as we were driving inside, I kept thinking, how long does it have to be like this? I mean, I know Troost Avenue is historically a major racially dividing line in our city. It's been like that for decades or probably longer. I know Sunday is maybe one of the most segregated times in our nation's weekly calendar. It's been like that probably for centuries. But just when I feel like we start making one step forward as a nation, when we start to make one step forward, what it seems like even as a church, then Ferguson hits or Charleston happens. Look, I don't know if you've seen the news recently, but we're in big trouble. And generation after generation of people have tried to pull us out of this mess, either by starting a 501c3, a nonprofit, or changing legislation or seeking to build awareness. But the one thing that consistently perks up is is not the awareness, but the question, is anything working? Are we any further along than we once were? Then there's what's happening around the world. In China, another cross is taken down by the government. Another Christian in the Middle East loses their lives at the hand of ISIS. Look, I don't know what it's like to be a minority. I don't have slavery running through my family line. I don't even really know what it means to be oppressed or abused like so many of my brothers and sisters. But I can only imagine the cries. So this is your plan, God? This is what you've got? Do you even see what's going on here? 
Do you hear our cries and the words of the Psalms just get stirred up and stirred up and stirred up? And maybe there's a good chance many of you in here this morning have made that cry. Some of you know that deep down in your bones, you've been discriminated against because of the color of your skin or your ethnicity. You weren't promoted because of the accent you have. But even still, it's a common human experience, not to the same level. Let's not say if you're not a minority, we understand. But here's the deal. Everybody at some point in life has had the moment when everything was crashing down around them and they felt utterly alone. And we say, so this is your plan, God. This is what you've got. Do you hear me? Have you forgotten about me? What's going on? And some of you may feel that way this morning. That's maybe why you're even here. And you're waiting on something to change, anything to change. Well, hear me this morning. You are not alone. You are not alone. There's actually a moment in history where a whole group of people are asking these questions. A story, a story that's so good that the people of God have been telling it for thousands of years. A story that's so good, we're going to take seven weeks to unpack it. <laughs> Not all in one sitting. So just... But here's the deal. It begins in the book of Exodus with a whole group, a whole nation of people crying out, deliver us, deliver us. The time is roughly about 1400 BC, so a little while ago. The place is Egypt, but not the politically tumultuous place we see on the news. No, this was a united Egypt. Northern and southern Egypt together were a superpower in the ancient Near Eastern world. But to even understand this story, we need to take one step further back to a book whose very name means the beginning. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, tells us how this people, God's people, the Israelites, find themselves... In Egypt anyway, there was a severe famine that had struck the land. And everybody in the Middle East was scrambling. And somehow, through a series of events, which is another set of stories for another set of days, Joseph found himself second in command in Egypt. And through his leadership, by God's divine working, the whole nation of Israel, which was about 70 people, more a family at this time than a nation... And all of Egypt are rescued from the famine through Joseph's wise leadership and God's divine appointment of him there. The closing words of the book of Genesis are actually the closing words of Joseph when he's on his deathbed. And he says, be prepared. God will visit us. God will bring us home. On his deathbed, be prepared. God will attend to his people and he'll bring us to the land he's promised us. And then Genesis ends. And then something happens. Or really, nothing happens for 400 years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. But generation after generation, Israel starts growing 19 kids in counting style. Okay? <laughs> They're exploding. They're becoming this nation and they've got some 2 million people, estimates have, to prove it. But what had started as an oasis in Egypt turned into a concentration camp. A new king was in town that didn't know Joseph and really could care less about Joseph. Fear had sparked because Israel was just getting a little too big. And listen to what he says. 
Actually, let's go back actually first to Exodus chapter 1 verse 7. Listen to what Exodus opens up with. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You see, God had promised their ancestor Abraham a long time ago he'd make them as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And it was happening. But it, st- it sparked fear in the leadership in Egypt. This is what the king says. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So this is your plan, God. Do you see what's happening to your people? I want you to think about this. God's faithfully carrying out his promises. Israel is multiplying like rabbits. But alongside of that, their oppression continues to grow. But even when God was talking to Abraham generations before this, he said, hey, guess what? I'm going to make you into a great nation, Abraham, but also get ready because your people will live as foreigners in a land and they will be slaves and I will have to be the judge to deliver them. None of this takes God by surprise. Why? Because whenever God is doing his work, more often than not, life gets harder, not easier. We may not want to hear that, but more often than not, when God begins to work in our lives, it starts to get harder rather than it gets easier. When God does his work to bless, the world goes about to oppress, okay? And time and time again, we see this Israel, this minority group in ancient Egypt. When they first show up, you know what Egypt says? You can have Goshen over here, this little space, but don't cross your barriers. Why don't you stay separate right over there? And then the text says they keep growing. Israel keeps growing and growing and growing, and they start getting broader and broader, and they start scattering throughout Egypt. You know, they were there for 400 years. I want you to give you some perspective. The United States has only been a nation for 240 years. They were there for 400 years, still seen as a threat to national security. They were still seen as these dirty shepherd immigrants. And you can almost imagine the conversation the Egyptians are having one with another. You see the way they're growing? You see the way these folks live? What about our national language? What about the Egypt we know and love? Everything's going to change. What about our culture? And in fear, Pharaoh gets self-protective and he misses out on the blessing that God is doing that could have been a blessing for Egypt if they would have listened. And that's a scary place to be when you go about opposing the purposes of God. Because in the words of prophet Johnny Cash, sooner or later, God will cut you down, right? (laughs) Sooner or later. Well, anyway, the nation of Israel is truly a nation, and it keeps growing, and it keeps growing, but the fear of the Egyptians grows right alongside. And if you look throughout history at the zenith of fear, 
Those who have power, those who are afraid of losing their power, go to great lengths to keep their power, even if it means oppressing and destroying the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. So what does Pharaoh do? He calls in the midwives, and he commands them to kill every Hebrew male child that's born. Somehow, in the midst of the birthing process, as soon as the midwives find out that it is a baby boy, they're supposed to snuff out the life of that child before the Hebrew wife even knows what happens. Why is this Pharaoh's plan? Because he underestimates the value of women, interestingly enough. What what is he doing? Oh, he wants to kill the male babies because the female babies aren't going to be an issue for him. Who does he call in? The female midwives... And he throws off his manhood, his power. Surely enough, they're going to shake in their knees. They'll keep this quiet and they'll just follow through. But ironically enough, every step along the way of the story, who is it that subverts the vicious plans of Pharaoh? Women. Hmm? Hmm? So what happens? What do the midwives do? We see in chapter 1, verse 17, because they fear God, they disobey Pharaoh. They couldn't kill those babies. They couldn't do it. And because of that, we see God blesses them. He may not be speaking, but he's still working, even in the silence, even when we don't even know he's there. Listen here. When our, when our culture goes about to kill its children or to abandon its children, something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. And we need to push back. When we're more concerned about losing our personal freedoms rather than caring for the freedoms of children, we got to speak up, right? And one thing that's so fascinating in this story, we can easily miss if we don't know the history here, a tidbit, is that the two names of these, or two of the midwives are named, Shifra and Pua. Isn't that so interesting? You get into all these major political shifts, and two of the midwives are named, You see, having your name recorded in history in Egyptian culture was everything. It was kind of a form of eternal life. And Moses, who we'll get to in a second, okay, uh, he's recording this history. He grew up in the Egyptian courts, we'll find out. He knows Pharaoh's name because Pharaoh isn't a name. It's a title, kind of like king or emperor. He knows Pharaoh's name, but he names two midwives. And Pharaoh is left nameless. It's kind of a subtle jab to kind of say, who's forgotten now, Pharaoh, right? Who's on the winning side of history now, Pharaoh? Two midwives remembered, one king of the known world, forever nameless, forgotten. What happens next is that even though some of these baby boys lived, they're still enslaved. You still have great taskmasters who were killing the Israelites. Sure, the midwives did a short stint of victory, but oppression still exists. So this is your plan, God? What else do you got? Well, Pharaoh had had enough. And so he bypasses the midwives altogether and he empowers every Egyptian now to get their hands dirty. What we actually read is he says, if you find out a baby boy is born, he tells this to everyone. If you find out a baby boy is born of the Hebrews, You, I don't care who you are, I don't care how you do it, throw them in the Nile. And you can imagine how brutal this scene is. Doors being broken down, 
mothers after giving birth to their sons, having their children ripped from their hands as they're screaming and they're crying. This is horrendous. And we can gloss over it if we don't pause for a minute to see how atrocious this scene is. And when history is at its darkest, as dark as night, finally we're primed for a leader. A baby boy is born, as we just heard read, to a young couple. And to their dread, it is a young boy. It's not a baby girl. And they hear the claims of Pharaoh in the background. And what should have been the first cries of celebration sound like a death sentence echoing off their small apartment walls. But all they could think about, the text says, is that he's so beautiful. His little fingers... His perfect smile. How could somebody want to kill this child? All to keep power. So this mother, as every good mother would, tries to figure out anything she can. She tries to keep this child quiet for three months, tirelessly doing whatever she can, knowing that if she gets caught, it could mean life for the whole family. This one innocent baby boy puts the whole family at risk, and she tries her best. But eventually the cries just get too loud. She's got to go back to work. But even still, she's not ready to give up. Not yet, not completely. And you can imagine in the middle of the night, in between her weeping, she weaves this basket-sized boat. Second-guessing every couple minutes, hoping and praying her son doesn't cry a little too loud. And the day comes. And that basket-sized boat looks a lot more like a little coffin than anything else. She puts her baby in the basket-sized boat, places him in the reeds, and as he's crying, with every bit of strength she can muster, she turns around and walks away, telling herself she can't look back. But big sister is there. While mom has to go back to work, she has to. Big sisters are the best, by the way, aren't they? (laughs) I've got two. I think they're awesome. Big sister sits watching on from the weeds. Now, one thing I didn't tell you is where this little basket was placed along the Nile. So often we see in the movies this little basket's rolling along the Nile and just happens to plop in a certain area. That's not what the text says. He was placed. There's strategic placement going on here. It happens to be the same place that Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the Nile to do some ritual bathing. Ritual bathing. Sure, it's a risk. What could happen? But it's a risk they've got to try. Well, her brother begins to cry. Pharaoh's daughter picks up the sound. She sends her servants over to the basket. They bring it back. She opens it up and instantly realizes it's one of the Hebrew male children. She hears the words of her father ringing in the back. I don't care who you are. I don't care how you do it. Drown the babies, kill the babies, and throw them in the Nile. There she is in the Nile with the baby. What's she going to do? We know the story. She takes pity on the baby. Maybe what we didn't know is that she doesn't have a son. History proclaims that this young daughter of Pharaoh has not yet had a son of her own, and there's not an heir, actually, to the throne of Egypt, many traditions say. 
And also what we need to know is that the Nile was called Happy back then, H-A-P-Y. It was seen as the agricultural, uh, the, the place for agricultural fertility for all of Egypt, as we see in these hieroglyphics. And so actually the Nile, Happy, was a god in Egyptian culture, a fertility god who brought together north and south Egypt that when they came together, they produced fertility. You know, the narratives get pretty graphic, as you can imagine. But Happy was a god. And so as she was thinking about it, in her mind, potentially, the gods have heard my prayers. I don't have a son of my own. This could be my son. And yet we know the true God working behind there has very different plans, yes? Well, at this point, actually, what's so fascinating, another point in many of the stories that I think gets it wrong is we often think that Pharaoh's daughter notices Moses' sister back in the weeds and calls her forward. But actually in the text, she's the one who's courageous and comes out of the weeds. Moses' big sister steps out and says, well, I happen to know a couple Hebrew women who could nurse that child if you want. This is another risk. Great courage displayed by another woman who's seeking to honor God. And Pharaoh's daughter tells her to go, and who does she come back with? But this little baby's mama, right? This little baby's mother, and she's paid now for three years to nurse her own son. And right here we got to pause and say, this is amazing. God is working. This is something to praise God about. But at the same time, it's a really dark, 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 dark story. Because after three years, she has to give up her son. After three years, involuntary adoption. When a mother would love to be there for her son, when he skins his knees, she won't get to be there. He'll never get to know Uncle Jacob's cheesy jokes or Aunt Sarah's, you know, smoked salmon or whatever. I don't know what the fish is in the Nile. I'm sorry. (laughs) She won't get to sing to him Israel's songs of history, of Israel's God. The one who's been with them since Abraham. The one who created the first man and woman. She won't get to tell him those stories. But instead, he'll be raised by one of them. The oppressors. His first language won't be Hebrew. It'll be Egyptian. The stories he'll know are the stories of Egypt's gods. Egypt's culture. Moses. You know, interestingly enough, This is the name that Pharaoh's daughter gives him. We don't even know the name that Moses' mom gave him. You know, in Hebrew, the name Moses sounds like to draw out, which is beautiful because it's pointing to a picture of what God's going to do for all of his people. Soon and very soon, he'll draw them out of slavery. But in Egyptian, it sounds like son. And Pharaoh's daughter's sending a message. He's Egypt's now. This is my son. And as Moses' biological mother says goodbye, you can hear her grabbing the floor of her apartment, thinking, so this is your plan, God? This is your plan? 
Well, I'm sure most of us have heard of Moses. He makes waves at some point in history, right? And we're all ready to see, you know, how God turns this around. But there's one big hiccup yet to come. Forty years pass between Exodus chapter 2, verse 10, and Exodus 2, verse 11. We know this in Stephen's recounting in Acts chapter 7. This baby has become a middle-aged man. And yet nothing has changed. Israel's still enslaved. Baby boys are still being killed. Nothing has changed. And now feels like the perfect time, right, Moses? Okay, you know, God, I get what you're doing. Moses knows the ins and outs of Egyptian culture. He's in a place of strategic influence. He's in the royal courts. Now I see what you're doing, God. This is perfect, right? Then something happens. Moses... He's become just like the Egyptians in these 40 years. He comes across an Egyptian taskmaster who's beating a Hebrew. And what does the text say? In Exodus 2, verse 12, he looked this way and that and saw no one. And he struck down the Egyptian. He killed him and buried him in the sand. Moses was in the royal court. He could have commanded that Egyptian to stop. But instead he takes things into his own hands. Driven by rage, he goes for revenge rather than justice. And word gets out, and it eventually reaches the ears of Pharaoh, and our once-hoped hero finds himself fleeing for his life some 375 miles from Egypt at a well in a place called Midian, which ironically enough is where Israel started some 400 years ago. And as we look in Exodus chapter 2, when the Midianites look at Moses, you know how they describe him? As an Egyptian who's lost his way. They don't even see him as an Israelite. Not a hero. And then for another 40 years, not 40 days, not four years, Moses stays right there. Learning what it feels like to be displaced. You know what he names his first child? I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. He learns what it means to be sojourner. He knows what it means now to be the outcast. Not just the Egyptian power. Not just the oppressor, but knows what it now means to be oppressed. But all this time, more slaves are dying in Egypt. More baby boys are being murdered. So this is your plan, God. Do you see this? Do you see what's happening? Have you forgotten your people? And so many people die over 80 years asking this question. And many today are still asking that question, aren't we? When we look at the racism against African Americans in our country and globally, when we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ who are abused and lose their lives, For the sake of the gospel. So this is your plan, God. For so many of you who are struggling just to make ends meet. For so many of you who feel paralyzed by depression. Who feel absolutely alone. For so many of you who are wondering if this addiction is going to have the last word. If this debt is going to bury you alive. So this is your plan, God. And while all of this, frankly, is nothing compared to what Israel went through. It still crushes us. And there's one glimmer of hope. At the beginning of the end, or at the end of the beginning (laughs) of this story, 
when Moses is off in Midian figuring himself out. In chapter 2, verse 20, during those, 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt, Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God hadn't forgotten them. God hears. God sees. God knows. God always knows. Always. Whether it's racism that still pervades in our country. I was coming back in the airport a couple weeks ago, and I got on the shuttle, you know, to go to your economy parking, because I'm cheap. And we get on the shuttle, and it's overloaded. Some say that's a good steward, by the way. Uh, I was on the shuttle, and it was overloaded, and it was all white folks, and then one African-American family, and the driver stops, and he comes back to the African-American family and asks them for their ticket. Do you know where you're going? Do you know the right lot to which you left your car? Didn't ask anybody else. No one else. And I looked at my friend next to me. I was like, did you see, did he ask you for your ticket? Did he check where you were from? He's like, no, he didn't do that. And everybody, and you just saw the shame on that African-American family. And I heard that, did you get the name of that bus driver? You know, like they're talking about, and everybody just feels the awkwardness of what just happened. I saw it, but here's the deal. God sees, God hears, God knows, God hasn't forgotten. When we think about the persecution of our brothers and sisters across the globe for the sake of the gospel, we've been praying for Farseed for years, who was imprisoned because of his Christian faith, continues to be abused in prison because of his Christian faith. And yet God hears, God sees, God knows, God hasn't forgotten. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering how long you're going to feel alone when sickness strikes, when depression, loneliness, anxiety paralyzes. God sees, God hears, God knows, God hasn't forgotten. And for those who perpetuate unjust laws against racial and ethnic minorities, for those who persecute followers of Jesus, for those who abuse their power and so abuse the vulnerable, God sees, God knows, God hears, God hasn't forgotten. And if you're here this morning and you feel forgotten, if there's anything we can get from the beginning of this story, I want to encourage you this morning to cry out to the God who hears. Cry out to the God who hears. Whatever it is, if it's something going on in your life, something you've seen in a brother or sister's life, something that's happening globally, whatever it is, cry out to the God who hears. He sees and he hears. He knows our pain. Don't interpret his silence as his absence. He's working. Are you crying out? And hear me this morning, you don't have to pretty up that cry, okay? We go to the Psalms in our scriptures and we find some of the rawest prayers ever found in the ancient Near Eastern world. No one would dare speak to their deity with such audacious language except for what we find in the Psalms. Compare the other literature in the ancient Near East. Our prayers are the worst. (laughs) 
the rawest, because our God's big enough for that. He can take the most raw human experience and receive it because he's that good. Cry out to the God who hears. And when you can't cry out any longer, then remind yourself what God remembers. Remind yourself what God remembers. He remembers his promises to his people. He remembers his promises to his people. Whenever God remembers, this isn't just a recalling of necessary information. It's not a game of jeopardy for God, okay? Instead, when God remembers, he acts. That's what we see in history. That's what we see in scripture. When God says, and I remember my covenant with Jacob, with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, that means God is acting in the welfare of his people. That's what it means for God to remember. So as God's people, we can rest assured that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Sure, we're fallen. We're messed up. We're culturally situated. And so when we come with our plans and our timing on how to God ought to, ought to do the things we think he ought to do, it's probably not going to line up. His timing, his plans, and his ways are not our ways, the prophet Isaiah reminds us. But he's always working. Remind yourself what God remembers of his good promises for his people. And after you've reminded yourself of the promises of God, then trust in the only God who knows. Trust in the only God who knows. God knows your pain, the deepest recesses of your brokenness. The Hebrew word for know is yada, which is more than just mental awareness. Okay, I can check off. I can write a summary as to what pain you're going. It's experiential. It's relational knowing. God is with his people in their pain is what he's saying. He hasn't been absent. He's there. So in those moments of pain, who will you trust with your pain? A quote I've always cherished is from the 19th century missionary who brought the gospel and proclaimed the gospel to the Chinese was Hudson Taylor. This past week marked 150 years from when he first went proclaiming the gospel in China. And he writes, It doesn't matter how great the pressure is. What really matters is where the pressure lies, whether it comes between you and God or presses you nearer his heart. Whatever it is in your life, is it pressing you nearer to God's heart? If so, you'll cry out to the God who hears. If so, you'll remind yourself what God remembers, and then you'll trust the only God who knows. How can we trust Him? How can we know He won't leave us in the dust? How do we know He hasn't forgotten us? How do we know He remembers and sees and hears? Because we know the bigger story. That some 1,400 years later, Not only was there a baby who miraculously escaped being murdered as an infant, but he was conceived miraculously. Conceived of a virgin, God became human and dwelt among us. And he knew what it meant to be under an oppressive regime in the Roman Empire. He knew what it meant to be devalued for his ethnicity as a Jewish person in a Roman world. He knew what it meant to be discarded and alone. You see, God was never satisfied with just knowing our pain out there. But he came, and he experienced our pain even to the point of death, death on a cross. 
because we needed someone to die for us. And he went further into death than we can ever go and praise God further into death than we ever have to go. Because three days later, he rose such that everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior will be delivered, will be saved in the last day. That's what we hold on to. Such that pain and death will be lost on the forever pages of history past. You see, that's God's plan. That's always been God's plan. Centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ for all who call upon his name. And what we're going to find out in these next seven weeks is that God doesn't forget about Moses in Midian. He doesn't forget about his people in Egypt. And he won't forget about you. He won't forget about you. Because of Jesus, we can know he will deliver us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. How it is both timely and timeless and speaking into our hearts and minds, strengthening our faith in you and what you've done in the history, how you've spoken in history as a symbol and a sign as to how you continue to speak and work in history today. We hold fast and we're thankful for how you worked in your people, Israel, in times past. And we pray you continue to do your work in the church today that you would guide your people from all race, from all ethnicity, from all cultural background, from all age, from all socioeconomic status, into now a unified family centered under the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in a culture that is shifting, no matter what the Supreme Court may say, we hold fast and we seek to follow hard after you. God, we know that when you work, oftentimes life gets harder rather than easier. May you give us courage. May you give us the strength to cry out. May you give us oh, the mind to remember what you remember. And may you give us the faith to trust you, to believe even though we so often do not believe to go against the grain when it calls us to do so, to affirm when it calls us to do so. May you be the God in the center of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before Jesus went to the cross, he gave his followers a meal. A meal that proclaims this good news of deliverance to our very senses of taste and touch and smell. It's here at the Lord's Supper through common broken bread. We remember Christ's body broken for us. It's through common juice. We remember the blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're new here, let me walk you through how we partake in the table together. If you are a follower of Jesus, you'll come down one of the two aisles, circle back around to one of the two communion stations. You'll gather in groups of four to six. You'll take the bread dip it in the juice, and then partake together. If you have a child who is here who's yet to proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, 
Our servers will offer a blessing in the same vein that Jesus blesses the children when they come to him. But before we come, let us remember what has been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.